This is the Sunday sermon series for Christmas in the traditional Latin Mass calendar. The first lesson is from St. Paul to Titus, chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. Beloved, the grace of God our Savior has appeared to all men, instructing us in order that, rejecting ungodliness and worldly lusts, we may live temperately and justly and piously in this world, looking for the blessed hope and glorious coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and cleanse for himself an acceptable people pursuing good works. Thus speak and exhort in Christ Jesus our Lord. A continuation of the Gospel according to St. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. At that time there went forth a decree from Caesar Augustus that a census of the whole world should be taken. This first census took place while Serenus was governor of Syria, and all were going each to his own town to register. And Joseph also went from Galilee out of the town of Nazareth into Judea to the town of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to register together with Mary his espoused wife, who was with child. And it came to pass while they were there that the days for her to be delivered were fulfilled, And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds in the same district, living in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of God shone round about them, and they feared exceedingly. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you, who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men of good will. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Merry Christmas to you all. Some of you may follow my VLX series where we often try to picture in our imagination those scenes from the life of Jesus and Mary. What did they look like? We learn from the great saints like St. Teresa of Avila, also known as St. Teresa of Jesus, that we are called to use our imagination to picture such things from the life of Christ. Sometimes we can even use the help of private revelation. What is the difference between public revelation and private revelation? Well, as most of you know, public revelation is the Bible and the magisterium. Private revelation, when approved, is when a saint has a vision or a locution, that is, audio, of God or a saint or an insight that pertains to the salvation of men and women. The longest approved revelation on the life of Mary is called the Mystical City of God by Mary of Agreda of Spain. She was given a vision of basically the whole life of Mary, and today for my sermon I'm going to read you her vision of Christmas, her vision of the day that Jesus was born to save all who would follow him. Now, normally I'm not going to turn this sermon series into just reading from a book, reading from private revelation, but I want you to hear 
how this 17th century Spanish Franciscan abbess, Venerable Mary of Jesus of Agrade of Spain, yes, venerable, meaning she is on her way to canonization, received a private revelation on the birth of Jesus Christ in her famous book, The Mystical City of God. Again, I'm going to read to you from this a book which has the approval of Popes Innocent XI, Alexander VIII, Clement IX, Benedict XIII, Benedict XIV, and Pope Clement XIV. Many of you have probably heard me say it was blasphemous for the Protestant TV series The Chosen to deny the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ since they erroneously made it messy. Was this an exaggeration on my part? Is this an appropriate topic for such a holy day as Christmas? Well, the truth is this. We can't get the vision of Christmas down if we don't have the right vision, and we can't get the theology of Jesus saving us down if we can't sideline the heresy surrounding it. Speaking of heresy, I was probably called a docetist heretic by certain Catholics for saying Mary did not feel birth pangs. Remember, docetism is the heresy that Jesus only seems to be human. Docetism is the heresy that Christ's body was not human, but either a phantasm. But the truth is, Jesus was fully human, and Mary was fully human, and yet Mary did not feel the birth pangs. Such a heresy, denying that, is obviously incompatible with today's great feast of Christmas. In fact, both heresies are incompatible with today's feast of Christmas, denying the humanity of Mary and Jesus, but also denying the miraculous state of the events that we celebrate today. In fact, I probably would have called myself a docetist back in my days of being a high school student at a Jesuit high school if someone had said way back then that a priest was going around my high school claiming Mary didn't have birth pangs at the birth of Jesus. But Mary's giving birth to Jesus was painless, and this is an infallible aspect, not of Catholic devotion, but of Catholic dogma. And it's even in the Church Fathers and Papal Encyclicals. So it's not ancillary, but it is central to the miracle of today, and we will see why. But isn't blasphemous too strong a word, in that I dislike very much that Mary in the Chosen says, I had to clean him off. He was covered in a, I will be polite, he needed to be cleaned. Is saying that that big of a deal? And again, that line is from the series, The Chosen. For the answer to that question, is it a big deal? Listen to St. John Chrysostom's sermon on today, Christmas. He says, Yet in becoming man, Christ was born, not as man is born, but as God. If he had been born from an ordinary union as I was, he would have been reckoned a fraud, and for this cause he is now born of a virgin. But in being born, he preserves undefiled this womb and protects the spotless virginity, so that this unheard of manner of bringing forth is for me a pledge of its sublime truthfulness. Tell me, O Judea, has a virgin brought forth, or has she not? If she has, then acknowledge this wondrous birth. Neither had the virgin labored with him to bring it to pass. So keep in mind, my friends, that Vatican I says that when all the church fathers speak unanimously on something, it is infallible. And all the church fathers, as well as later papal encyclicals, hold fast to the fact that the birth of Jesus was painless for the Blessed Virgin Mary, and miraculous as light passing through glass. 
The early church fathers who attacked Docetism were not Docetists. They believed in the humanity of Jesus, but they also believed in miracles. And if we deny this first miracle of Jesus, namely his own painless birth, or maybe second, after the Annunciation slash Incarnation, then St. John Chrysostom basically says we're no better than the Jews who deny Christ's divinity. This is the teaching of the entire magisterium for nearly 2,000 years before this general apostasy in the church that we have seen in the past 60 years. I understand. I truly am compassionate. I don't mean that in a condescending way. I really do understand Catholics have so little leadership in the hierarchy that most actually think a Protestant TV show is how it all went down. But this isn't just about me ripping on the Chosen on Christmas. That would be a sad Christmas. Even the movie Nativity Story has major blasphemies against Mary in it. So we need a Catholic vision of Christmas since we're unfortunately outdone in the movie business on the life of Christ. Now, among Catholics by Protestants, except for Mel Gibson's Passion and movies they were making 60, 70, 80 years ago. But again, is Christmas really the day for me to give a sermon about the difference between Catholic and Protestant movies? You will hear, as you hear the Catholic mystic today describe the scene of the birth of Jesus, how nearly all of, all of us have a Protestant view of today's holy day. You might think, now is not the day to give a sermon on the difference between Catholic and Protestant movies. Can't we all just be Christian on Christmas? But here's the answer to that. If we get the vision and the theology wrong, then we're not worshiping the same Jesus. And central to today's holy day is a miraculous birth. As you listen to this account of Agreda, please realize again that the miraculous birth does not deny the humanity of Jesus. It simply affirms his divinity as all the fathers held. And we are not celebrating the birthday of any mere man today. We're not just celebrating the birth of a prophet or a teacher. We are celebrating the birthday of the God-man to the Immaculate Virgin Mary. And that is why I'm going to read you the mystic's vision. To replace these silly movies we all have in our heads. Jesus and Mary were both fully human, of course. But if we deny this first miracle of Jesus, namely a painless birth, with thousands of angels present, as we heard in the Gospel, then I don't see how we can hold to the divinity of Christ and be called Catholics or even Christians. The early Orthodox Fathers and all popes before Vatican II all compare the birth of Jesus to his resurrection of how Christ himself passed through the stone of the tomb, or as light passes through glass, but with a real body. Now think about it. Do any evangelicals out there, do any evangelicals deny the miracle of the resurrection? Of course not. Then why should we as Catholics be ashamed of our own magisterium, the Christ passed twice miraculously, once at his birth and again at his resurrection, through matter, with the matter of his body, but still miraculous. But most Catholics take their lead from Protestants, as seen in the viewership of Protestant movies, very silly ones like Son of God. I literally walked out of that movie. Yes, Protestant movies might get the poverty correct of the nativity, but not the supernatural activity of the angels that filled the cave. So listen now to how totally different the attitude is as found in the completely Protestant movies we see as compared to the completely Catholic mystical city of God by Venerable Mary of Agreda as I read the following 
20 or 30 minutes of private revelation. Listen to how the entire approach and understanding of the life of Jesus and Mary is so radically different for a Catholic as juxtaposed to our Protestant background today. I know you've already made it about 12 minutes into this podcast, and there's another probably 20 minutes, maybe more. But it's worth listening to, even if you have to break up this sermon, this reading of the mystic through Christmas week, so you can get through this true Catholic's view, this vision God gave her of the cave of Bethlehem, and what was experienced by Mary and Joseph at the birth of the true Son of God. This upcoming private revelation from the 17th century on the birth of Jesus, again, is about 20 minutes, maybe more. So I understand if you have to break it up to a few listening sessions this week. But now you will hear the beauty of the longest and most valuable of private revelations from Venerable Mary of Agreda on the birth of Christ. Now in chapter 10, as she writes, Christ our hope is born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, Judah. The palace which the Supreme King of Kings and the Lord of Lords had chosen for entertaining his eternal and incarnate Son in this world was a most poor and insignificant hut or cave, to which the Most Holy Mary and Joseph betook themselves after they had been denied all hospitality and the most ordinary kindness by their fellow men, as I have described in the foregoing chapter. This place was held in such contempt that, though the town of Bethlehem was full of strangers and want of night shelter, none would demean or degrade himself so far as to make use of it for a lodging, for there was none who deemed it suitable or desirable for such a purpose, except the teachers of humility and poverty, Christ our Savior, and his purest mother. On this account, the wisdom of the Eternal Father had reserved it for them, consecrating it in all its barrenness, loneliness, and poverty as the first temple of light and as the house of the true Son of Justice, which was to arrive for the upright of heart from the resplendent Aurora Mary, turning the night of sin into the daylight of grace. Most Holy Mary and St. Joseph entered this lodging, thus provided for them, and by the effulgence of the 10,000 angels of their guard, they could easily ascertain its poverty and loneliness, which they esteemed as favors and welcomed with tears of consolation and joy. Without delay, the two holy travelers fell on their knees and praised the Lord, giving him thanks for his benefit, which they knew had been provided by his wisdom for his own hidden designs. Of this mystery, the heavenly princess Mary had a better insight For as soon as she sanctified the interior of the cave by her sacred footsteps, she felt a fullness of joy which entirely elevated and vivified her. She besought the Lord to bless with a generous hand all the inhabitants of the neighboring city, because by rejecting her, they had given occasion to the vast favors which she awaited in this neglected cavern. It was formed entirely of the bare and coarse rocks, without any natural beauty or artificial adornment, a place intended merely for the shelter of animals. Yet the Eternal Father had selected it for the shelter and dwelling place of His own Son. The angelic spirits, who like a celestial militia guarded their queen and mistress, formed themselves into cohorts in the manner of court guards in a royal palace. They showed themselves in their visible forms also to St. Joseph, For on this occasion it was befitting that he should enjoy such a favor. On the one hand, in order to assuage his sorrow by allowing him to behold 
this poor lodging thus beautified and adorned by their celestial presence, and on the other, in order to enliven and encourage him for the events which the Lord intended to bring about during that night and in this forsaken place. The great queen and empress, who is already informed of the mystery to be transacted here, set about cleaning with her own hands the cave, which was so soon to serve as a royal throne and sacred mercy seat. For neither did she want to miss this occasion for exercising her humility, nor would she deprive her only begotten son of the worship and reverence implied by this preparation and cleansing of his temple. St. Joseph, mindful of the majesty of his heavenly spouse, which it seemed to him she was forgetting in her ardent longing for humiliation, besought her not to deprive him of this work, which he considered as his alone, and he hastened to set about cleaning the floor and the corners of the cave, although the humble queen continued to assist him therein. As the holy angels were then present in visible forms, they were, according to our mode of speaking, abashed at such eagerness for humiliation, and they speedily emulated with each other to join in this work, or rather, in order to say it more succinctly, in the shortest time possible they had cleansed and set in order that cave, filling it with holy fragrance. St. Joseph started a fire with the material which he had brought for that purpose. As it was very cold, they sat at the fire in order to get warm. They partook of the food which they had brought, and they ate this, their frugal supper, with incomparable joy of their souls. The Queen of Heaven was so absorbed and taken up with the thought of the impending mystery of her divine delivery that she would not have partaken of food if she had not been urged thereto by obedience to her spouse. After their supper, they gave thanks to the Lord, as was their custom. Having spent a short time in this prayer and conferring about the mysteries of the Incarnate Word, the Most Prudent Virgin felt the approach of the Most Blessed Birth. She requested her spouse, St. Joseph, to betake himself to rest and sleep as the night was already far advanced. The man of God yielded to the request of his spouse and urged her to do the same. And for this purpose, he arranged and prepared a sort of couch with the articles of wear in their possession, making use of a crib or manger that had been left by the shepherds for their animals. Leaving Most Holy Mary in the portion of the cave thus furnished, St. Joseph retired to a corner of the entrance where he began to pray. He was immediately visited by the Divine Spirit and felt a most sweet and extraordinary influence by which he was wrapped and elevated into an ecstasy. In it was shown him all that passed during that night in this blessed cave, for he did not return to consciousness until his heavenly spouse called him. Such was the sleep which St. Joseph enjoyed in that night, more exalted and blessed than that of Adam in paradise. The queen of all creatures was called from her resting place by a loud voice of the Most High, which strongly and sweetly raised her above all created things and caused her to feel new effects of divine power. For this was one of the most singular and admirable ecstasies of her most holy life. Immediately also she was filled with new enlightenment and divine influences, such as I have described in other places, until she reached the clear vision of the divinity. The veil fell, and she saw intuitively the Godhead itself in such glory and plenitude of insight as all the capacity of men and angels could not describe or fully understand. All the knowledge of the divinity and humanity of her Most Holy Son, which she had ever received in former visions, was renewed, and moreover, other secrets of the inexhaustible archives of the bosom of God were revealed to her. 
I have not ideas or words sufficient and adequate for expressing what I have been allowed to see of these sacraments by the divine light, and their abundance and multiplicity convince me of the poverty and want of proper expression in created language. The Most High announced to his virgin mother that the time of his coming into the world had arrived, and what would be the manner in which this was now to be fulfilled and executed. The most prudent lady perceived in this vision the purpose and exalted scope of these wonderful mysteries and sacraments, as well insofar as related to the Lord himself, as also insofar as they concern creatures, for whose benefit they had been primarily decreed. She prostrated herself before the throne of his divinity and gave him glory, magnificence, thanks and praise for herself and for all creatures, such as was befitting the ineffable mercy and condescension of his divine love. At the same time, she asked of the divine majesty new light and grace in order to be able worthily to undertake the service and worship and the rearing up of the word made flesh, whom she was to bear in her arms and nourish with her virginal milk. This petition the Heavenly Mother brought forward with the profoundest humility as one who understood the greatness of this new sacrament. She held herself unworthy of the office of rearing up and conversing as a mother with a God incarnate of which even the highest seraphim are incapable. Prudently and humbly did the mother of wisdom ponder and weigh this matter. And because she humbled herself to the dust and acknowledged her nothingness in the presence of the Almighty, therefore his majesty raised her up and confirmed anew upon her the title of Mother of God. He commanded her to exercise this office and ministry of a legitimate and true mother of himself, that she should treat him as the son of the Eternal Father, and at the same time the son of her womb. All this could be easily entrusted to such a mother, in whom was contained an excellence that words cannot express. The Most Holy Mary remained in this ecstasy and beatific vision for over an hour immediately preceding her divine delivery. At the moment when she issued from it and regained the use of her senses, she felt and saw that the body of the infant God began to move in her virginal womb. How, releasing and freeing himself from the place which in the course of nature he had occupied for nine months, he now prepared to issue forth from that sacred bridal chamber. This movement not only did not cause any pain or hardship as happens with the other daughters of Adam and Eve in their childbirths, but filled her with incomparable joy and delight, causing in her soul and in her virginal body such exalted and divine effects that they exceed all thoughts of men. Her body became so spiritualized with the beauty of heaven that she seemed no more a human and earthly creature. Her countenance emitted rays of light like a sun incarnated and shone in indescribable earnestness and majesty all inflamed with fervent love. She was kneeling in the manger, her eyes raised to heaven, her hands joined and folded at her breast, her soul wrapped in the divinity, and she herself was entirely deified. In this position and at the end of her heavenly rapture, the most exalted lady gave to the world the only begotten of the Father and her own, our Savior Jesus, true God and man at the hour of midnight on a Sunday, in the year of the creation of the world, 5,199 which is the date given in the Roman Church, and which date has been manifested to me as the true and certain one. At the end of the beatific rapture and vision of the Mother Ever Virgin, which I have described above, was born the Son of Justice, 
the only begotten of the Eternal Father, and of Mary most pure, beautiful, refulgent, and immaculate, leaving her untouched in her virginal integrity and purity, and making her more godlike and forever sacred. For he did not divide, but penetrated the virginal chamber as the rays of the sun penetrate the crystal shrine, lighting it up in prismatic beauty. Before I describe the miraculous manner in which this took place, I wish to say that the divine child was born pure and disengaged, without the protecting shield called secundina, probably amniotic fluid, surrounded by which other children are commonly born and in which they are enveloped in the wombs of their mothers. I will, not, I will not detain myself in explaining the cause and origin of the error which is contrary to this statement. It is enough to know and suppose that in the generation and birth of the incarnate word, the arm of the Almighty selected and made use of all that substantially and unavoidably belonged to natural human generation so that the Word could truly call himself conceived and engendered as a true man and born of the substance of his mother-ever-virgin, in regard to the other circumstances, which are not essential but accidental to generation and nativity, we must disconnect our ideas of Christ our Lord and of the Most Holy Mary not only from all that are in any way related or consequent upon any sin, original or actual, but also from many others which are not necessary for the essential reality of the generation or birth, and which imply some impurity or superfluity, that could in any way lessen or impair the dignity of Mary as the Queen of Heaven and as true Mother of Christ our Lord. For many such imperfections of sin or nature were not necessary, either for the true humanity of Christ, or for his office of Redeemer or Teacher, and whatever was not necessary for these three ends, and whatever by its absence would redound to the greater dignity of Christ and his Mother, must be denied of both. Nor must we be stingy in presuming wonderful intervention of the author of nature and grace in favor of her who was his worthy mother, prepared, adorned, and made increasingly beautiful for this purpose. For the divine right hand enriched her at all times with gifts and graces and reached the utmost limits of his omnipotence possible in regard to a mere creature. In accordance with this truth, her true motherhood was not impaired by her remaining a virgin in his conception and birth through the operation of the Holy Ghost. Likewise, the divine child could have been born with this covering in which others are born, yet this was not necessary in order to be born a natural son of the Blessed Mother. Hence, he could choose not to take it forth from him, from the virginal and maternal womb, just as he chose not to pay to nature other penal tributes of impurity, which other human beings do pay at their coming into the light. It was not just that the incarnate word should be subject to all the laws of the sons of Adam, but it was consequent upon his miraculous birth that he be exempt and free from all that could be caused by the corruption or uncleanness of matter. Thus also, this covering, or segundina, amniotic fluid, was not to fall a prey to corruption outside of the virginal womb, because it had been so closely connected and attached to his most holy body, and because it was composed of the blood and substance of his mother, in like manner it was not advisable to keep and preserve it outside of her nor was it becoming to give it the same privileges and importance as to his divine body in coming forth from the body of his most holy mother, as I will yet explain. The wonder which would have to be wrought to dispose of that sacred covering outside of the womb could be wrought much more appropriately within. The infant God, therefore, was brought forth from the virginal chamber, unencumbered by any corporeal or material substance foreign to himself. But he came forth glorious and transfigured for the divine and infinite wisdom decreed and ordained 
that the glory of his most holy soul should in his birth overflow and communicate itself to his body, participating in the gifts of glory in the same way as happened afterwards in his transfiguration on Mount Tabor in the presence of the apostles. This miracle was not necessary in order to penetrate the virginal enclosure and to leave unimpaired the virginal integrity, for without this transfiguration, God could have brought this about by other miracles. Thus say the holy doctors, who see no other miracle in this birth than that the child was born without impairing the virginity of the mother. It was the will of God that the most blessed virgin should look upon the body of her son, the God-man, for this first time in a glorified state for two reasons. The one was in order that, by this divine vision, the most prudent mother should conceive the highest reverence for the majesty of him whom she was to treat as her son, the true God-man. Although she was already informed of his twofold nature, the Lord nevertheless ordained that by ocular demonstration she be filled with new graces corresponding to the greatness of her most holy Son, which was thus manifested to her in a visible manner. The second reason was to reward by this wonder the fidelity and holiness of the Divine Mother, for her most pure and chaste eyes that had turned away from all earthly things for love of her most holy Son, were to see him at his very birth in this glory, and thus be rejoiced and rewarded for her loyalty and beautiful love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.